this brief text of just a few verses, Exodus 2, 23-25, divides neatly into two points. God's people pray, and God responds. The situation, by way of reminder, which I mentioned just a moment ago, is that as it says in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 2, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And under his regime, the Israelites have become slaves and are now victims of a policy of male infanticide. So let's jump right in, beginning with our first point. God's people pray. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. That they pray is the meaning of the phrase they cried out for help. They not only groaned, but they also cried out for help. Groaning is the natural response of mankind to to difficulty or trouble. You hurt yourself and you're almost bound to make some kind of noise. You You have a heavy thing that you need to carry from point A to point B. And if it's heavy enough and if the distance is long enough, you're probably going to make some kind of noise. This groaning is almost involuntary. But to cry out for help... To cry out for help is a religious exercise. There are presuppositions involved in crying out for help. There is someone there. Has to be underneath a cry for help. Or at least there might be someone there who will hear. We don't know how educated these children of Israel, several generations. Remember, we're just, we've covered just a couple of chapters, but several generations have gone by. A long span of time has gone by. We don't know how educated these children of Israel, several generations removed from Jacob and his sons were in terms of the worship of Yahweh and the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As it is so often in our day and age, so it may have been then that the grandfather and the grandmother believed firmly in God, in Christ Jesus, say, in our modern day and age. But one generation gives way to another, which gives way to another, and the great-grandchildren or the great-great-grandchildren are brought up in an utterly secular environment, within an utterly secular paradigm. This is the sort of shift that has been taking place in the West, in fact, over the last uh, several generations. And so, something like that may have happened in this setting, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were recipients of promises, and Jacob, doubtless, spoke to his children. We read that, we know that Joseph was a worshiper of Yahweh, that he was a godly man, he was even a prefiguration, a type of Christ Jesus, as we saw as we were preaching through the Joseph narrative. But several generations may have gone by and these Israelites may have known very little about the God of their fathers. We don't know. But they cried out to Yahweh, nevertheless, the God of their fathers, with at least the hope, at least the hope that he might be listening. The way that if you were desperate, 
say you had a car accident in a, a rural area late at night and you were flung and ejected from the vehicle and you find yourself in a field a distance from the road and you can't move, you might cry out hoping that someone will hear. These people at least cry out to Yahweh with the hope that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might at least be listening. Sometimes we only groan but do not cry out for help. We go through troubles, we go through difficulties, and all we do is groan. We just make those involuntary noises, so to speak. Those um, exclamations of pain, the complaining, the weeping, the sighing. But we don't cry out for help. Such a response is even less than these Israelites offer here. It amounts to nothing but functional atheism. Because not even to try to cry out for help is not is is less than thinking that God might possibly hear us. It's assuming that there's no point because He certainly won't. And so not to pray, not to cry out to God in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our difficulties, is functional atheism. We don't see that happening here. We see at least some level of hope that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might still be listening to the children of Israel. If we, like these people, have even an inkling that God perhaps hears and cares, we ought to pray. And in this case, in Exodus chapter 2, did God hear and did God care? This brings us to our second point. The first point was God's people pray. This is the first heading into which this text divides. The second heading into which this text divides is God's response. And we see this in verses 24 and 25. In this case, did God hear and care? Yes! God did hear and care. We read four things here. That God heard. That God remembered. That God saw. And that God knew. We'll look at each of these in turn. But know first what Alec Motier calls the delightfully human way that the Bible speaks to us about God. Here in this passage. There is in theology a couple of big words. I'm going to give them to you and then I'm going to explain them. Anthropomorphism and anthropopathism. Anthropology is the study of mankind, human. And so anthropo is that prefix has to do with man or humanness. As I understand these concepts, anthropomorphism is ascribing to God the physicality of mankind. Such as when we say the hand of God or the finger of God. When we know full well that God doesn't have hands or fingers. We're using anthropomorphism. It's a matter of speaking. Anthropopathism, on the other hand, is ascribing to God the passions, feelings, affections, experiences of mankind. And that is primarily what is happening here. Listen to Motir again. Verse 24 says, 
that God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant. This is the way in which God is represented to us. But of course, we know that it is impossible for God to forget. He never forgets His people, nor the word that He has pledged, His covenant. Motir further says that God condescends to accommodate His eternal, sovereign, providential working to what we can understand. So with this concept, this principle in mind that we're dealing with accommodated language here, anthropopathism, let's look at each of these four verbs together in greater detail. First, God heard. Of course, there is a sense in which God hears everything. There is no whisper so quiet. There is no wall so thick. There is no background noise so successful at muffling the words spoken that God is unable to hear what is said. But in the scripture, God is said to hear some and not others. Such as in Psalm 34, 15, where we read, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The point of citing that verse here is not so much to argue that the Israelites were righteous and that therefore God heard. Rather, it's to demonstrate that hearing in this verse means more than just literally knowing what the people said, but giving ear to them, paying attention to them. We see that usage of hear in other places, such as in Psalm 34, 15. God technically hears everything, but there is a sense in which He lends ear. He gives ear in a special way, in a particular way, in in certain instances, and unto certain people. And that's what's happening here. God paid special attention to the groanings and the cries for help of His people Israel here in slavery in Egypt. Little children often fail to respond in the ways that we would like them to, to what we say. In fact, many times little children fail to respond at all. You say their name and they just keep playing. You say their name again and they just keep playing. You say it a little bit louder and they just keep playing. But you mention any form of discipline or you mention any form of reward, chocolate or Nintendo or whatever, all of a sudden they hear you. You see, there's nothing, there was nothing wrong with their ears. They technically heard, but they weren't listening. And in, in a sense, that might be analogous. God always hears, but He's not always tuning in in the same way, so to speak. That God is not always focusing His attention upon that which is said, so to speak. It's not a perfect analogy, of course, but it might help us to understand this concept. Second Chronicles 7.14 In Second Chronicles 7.14, the Lord says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear. Implying if my people don't humble themselves and don't pray and don't seek my face and don't turn from their wicked ways, then I won't hear. 
it will be like speaking to a child who is disinterested in what you have to say. And you're not going to get any response from heaven whatsoever. Though he technically hears, he won't listen. In this case, God's people groan. And God's people cry out for help. And God hears. Next we read that God remembered. Specifically, God remembered His covenant. It says... It's not as if he forgot it. We read an injunction elsewhere in scripture. Remember and do not forget. Isn't that just two ways of saying the same thing? Sometimes when we read about remembering in scripture, if we just substitute do not forget or did not forget, it makes it a little more intuitive to us. What if we said this, and God had not forgotten his covenant? That might help us get the sense of what's happening here. It's presented to us as remembering, but it's not so much an issue of recollecting. It's more of an issue of God had not forgotten and was now about to honor the terms of his covenant. Douglas Stewart, commentator, says that this phrase, remembering his covenant, is idiomatic for covenant application rather than recollection. In other words, whenever we read God remembered His covenant, we know that God is about to act on behalf of His people. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob their own land, remember? God had promised descendants as numerous as the stars. He had promised kings from Abraham's loins. He had promised that in Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How could these things come to pass while God's people were slaves in Egypt? The answer to that question is they could not and therefore God needed to act if the terms of His covenant were to be honored from the divine side. If God was going to bring about those things which he had promised. He would need to act. And so in that sense, God remembered and did not forget, had not forgotten the terms of his covenant and was about to work towards bringing his covenant to fulfillment. So God heard and God remembered. Next, God saw, again, Psalm thirty-four, fifteen. It's helpful to us. This is very similar to God heard. We read, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. Just as God always hears, technically, but sometimes doesn't listen, so God always sees, but sometimes, as it were, turns a blind eye, walks away, doesn't get involved, so to speak. God leaves people sometimes, in their plight, rather than intervening on their behalf. In that sense, God chooses not to see in those situations. When in other situations, the eyes of the Lord are upon certain people, certain places, at certain times. This is what Psalm 34, 15 teaches us. That there is such a thing as the eyes of the Lord being upon you and the ears of the Lord being toward you. 
which by implication teaches us that there is a certain sense in which the eyes of the Lord might not be toward you and the ears of the Lord might not be toward you in this case both the eyes of the Lord as well as the ears of the Lord are towards the people of Israel in their groaning and in their crying for help he has not forgotten the terms of his covenant his eyes are upon them it's like Hagar said in Genesis 16:13 when God met her in her distress as she was running from Abraham and Sarai You are a God who sees me He saw her in her distress and he condescended to her and he met her and she rightly said you are a God who sees me You are a God who pays attention to me in my distress That's the thrust of it in Genesis 16 and that's what's happening here. The Israelites could well have said after the fact of the Exodus, you are a God who sees us, who saw us in Egypt. So God heard, God remembered, God saw, and finally God knew. Allow me an extended quote from Motier. In the Old Testament, knowing someone also implies actively entering into an intimate relationship with them. Just as in another setting the Hebrew says that Adam knew his wife. In other words, he entered into the deepest, most personal intimacy of mutual knowledge two humans can experience. Similarly, when Psalm 1:6 says that God knows the way of the righteous, it means he registers how they are and then maintains intimate and knowledgeable relationship with them as they go through life this is the sense here in this passage of god knew so what does this mean for us we know that god is about to act on behalf of the Israelites i think most of us are familiar with the broad strokes of the storyline of Exodus the people are in slavery god raises up moses to send to them to rescue them from slavery in egypt and brings them out the very next chapter exodus 3 which we'll deal with next week lord willing is the famous burning bush encounter of moses with god we know that for them god hearing god remembering god seeing and god knowing meant that he was about to act on their behalf it's these verbs signal to us as we read the end of exodus chapter 2 that something is about to happen in terms of divine intervention in the israelites plight we understand that that's what it meant for them what does this mean for us For one thing it demonstrates to us that God hears our groans and prayers. That he remembers his covenant with us. That he sees us and that he knows us. God says, "I the Lord do not change." 
We read in Hebrews chapter 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who heard the groans and the cries of His people in Egypt is the same God who hears the groans and the cries that His people utter today. The God who remembered the covenant that He had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning them is the same God who remembers the covenant that He has entered into with us. The same God that saw their circumstances, their affairs, their plight is the same God that sees our affairs and our circumstances and our plight. The same God that knew them. Not just cognitive knowledge, but as we just read, an intimate and knowledgeable relationship with them. Registering how they are, that same God registers how we are. And maintains an intimate and knowledgeable relationship with us. As we make our way through our lives. The same God is in heaven. We are gathered here tonight to worship the God who heard the groans and the cries of the Israelites in Egypt. We are gathered here tonight to worship the God who remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on their behalf. We are gathered here tonight to worship the God who saw the children of Israel in Egypt. We are here tonight to worship the God who knew exactly what was going on in their lives and who knew them. Motir follows up on what he said about how God knew them by saying God's knowledge of how we are placed, how we feel, what it is like to be us is not a remote or merely objective acquaintance with the facts. It involves a coming down, a knowing companionship, indeed a transforming intention. And Motir draws our attention to Exodus 3, 7, and 8, in which God says, I know their sufferings and I have come down. This is the way it is with God's hearing and remembering and seeing and knowing of us. God comes down to us to hear, to see, to know. And God remembers His covenant with us. All of the promises that He has made to us in Christ will be fulfilled. God has not forgotten His covenant. We read in the Scriptures that whoever believes in Christ Jesus will be justified Forgiven for our sins and counted as righteous in God's sight. We also read that God will sanctify His people through, in the midst of, our suffering. That God will make us holier and holier. That is the purpose that He has for us. After we are justified, He will then actually make us holy. He doesn't justify us because we are holy. He justifies us in spite of the fact that we are not holy by giving us the righteousness of Christ Jesus 
by counting Jesus' death as our death, so to speak. The punishment that we deserve has already been paid out to Christ as our substitute. And so He justifies us apart from any consideration of our holiness and our worthiness. But then He actually promises to make us holy. He does it in the midst of suffering. In fact, He often does it through suffering. Suffering is often like sandpaper, which makes us smooth. It's it's the tool which God uses to take off our rough edges, so to speak. Those promises will be fulfilled. God has not forgotten about you. If He leaves you in your suffering, it's not because He has forgotten about you. Those in Isaiah 49 and verse 14 said, The Lord has forgotten about us, but as we read, God says, No! Even a mother might forget about her child. It's so unlikely, but it's possible. My love is even stronger than that. I will never forget about you. I have engraved you upon the palms of my hands. Don't worry, Christian, in the midst of suffering, God has not forgotten about you. He is nevertheless going to fulfill all of the promises that He has made to you in the new covenant. In fact, it might even be by means of the very suffering that you are experiencing that God will bring to pass the promises that He has made to you in the new covenant, among which are conforming you to the image of Christ. And eventually God has promised that we will be rescued from suffering itself. On that note, let me highlight that God is not merely concerned with the religious deliverance of the Israelites. Let me repeat that. God is not merely concerned with the religious deliverance of the Israelites. As Tony Morita rightly points out, we cannot allow ourselves to miss the social, political, economic dimension in Exodus. The Israelites were not primarily crying out for deliverance from the idolatry of the gods of Egypt. The Israelites were not primarily crying out for deliverance from a religious system which was repugnant to their monotheism. The Israelites were not primarily crying out for the forgiveness of their sins. We don't read here that in the midst of their slavery, they were so broken about their sin that they said, Lord, we don't care that we're slaves, we just want to be forgiven. That is not how this narrative flows. And so I think Marita is quite right to point out, we cannot allow ourselves to miss the social, political, economic dimension in Exodus. Look at the text. They were groaning and crying out about slavery and oppression. And God heard, remembered, saw, and knew. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. This teaches us that God was concerned about their bodies as well as their souls. Certainly we know that there was a religious and spiritual aspect to the Exodus. 
Of course, God brought out from Egypt His people whom He constituted as a nation to whom He gave His laws, which were not only civil but very much religious in their nature. He says in Exodus 19, which we'll get to in due time, if you keep these commands, you're going to be for me a holy people, a nation of priests. There is certainly a religious dimension where God does bring them out from the polytheism of the Egyptians into the monotheism of the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. In fact, as they're about to cross the Red Sea, God um, uh, says that, or sorry, is it after in Exodus 14, that God is going to get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, Exodus 14, 17. And all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Sorry, this isn't in my notes, so I'm going off the top of my head. I thought it was that passage which I just read, but elsewhere it says that God got glory over the gods of Egypt. Can't give you the reference to that. But you see very clearly that what God was doing was certainly a religious, a spiritual rescue. There's no doubt about that. But make no mistake, it was also a rescue from literal slavery. It was also a compassionate deliverance from the hard labor which was forced upon them. It was also a deliverance from the policy of male infanticide so that they could live freely as free men in their own land and so that their male babies could live. What that teaches us, what this shows us, is that God hears, God sees, God knows not only our spiritual difficulties, but also our temporal ones, also our physical ones. And in fact, in the new covenant, God has promised to relieve us of those things also. Not necessarily here and now. This is the primary error of the prosperity gospel, you know, not because they promise too much, but because they have the timing wrong. Nobody, nobody is going to be sick in heaven. Nobody, nobody is going to be suffering in heaven. Nobody is in heaven going to be just trying to figure out where rent is going to come from at the end of the month. Nobody is in heaven going to be trying to search between the cushions for change to buy the next meal. Nobody, in that sense, nobody's going to be poor in heaven. You see? Then and now, God cares for the whole person. God hears, God sees, God knows. And in the new covenant, God has promised eventual rescue from suffering itself. God's plan for you, Christian, is not that you will always be suffering. Even if His plan for you means that you are suffering right now.
just as it was for them, so shall it be for us. Because we serve the same God. Because the new covenant is better than the old, is not inferior in any way. There is nothing that they experienced in the Exodus which is greater than what we will one day experience or have already experienced in the new covenant. They received a spiritual and temporal deliverance. And likewise, we will too. One day, Christian, we shall be free, body and soul, in every way. So cry out to God. Groan, yes. And cry out to God in the midst of whatever you're going through in this life. Bring it to the Lord. As that song that we sing every so often says, take it to the Lord in prayer. And know that God hears. God sees. God knows now as He did then. And God has not forgotten His covenant with us just as He did not forget His covenant had not forgotten His covenant with them. You realize that He left them in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. That means that there was a lot of groaning, perhaps even a lot of crying for help that happened before God said, yes, it's time. And so it may be even today. Don't hear me saying that next week your circumstances are going to change because God cares about body and soul. I don't know that, and I could never preach that as there's no basis to make a claim like that from the Bible. But listen, Christian, God hears, God sees, God knows. And in due time, God will bring all the promises of the new covenant to pass, which include your justification, which include your spiritual progress as He makes you holy, but which also include your deliverance from suffering itself. Listen to Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Christian, just as it was then, so it is now and so shall it be. God hears your groanings and your cries for help. God sees, God knows, and God has not forgotten His covenant in which He has promised not only to forgive your sins, but to make you holy and one day also to rescue you from the suffering that you experience here and now.
God sees, pardon me, God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. This ought to be a great comfort to us.